Well, every year the American Dialect Society chooses a word of the year. Uh, the word of the year for 2017 was actually two words, and I assume they know that since they are the uh, Dialect Society. Uh, the word of the year was fake news. Interesting. Probably pretty appropriate when you think about it. I want to read to you how they identified or how they defined rather fake news. Disinformation or falsehoods presented as real news. And they included a second definition as well. Or actual news that is claimed to be untrue. If that's not confusing, I don't know what it is. So it can be something false that's said to be true or it can be something true that's said to be false. It's fake news. Now, this is nothing new, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Falsehood, lies, disinformation, propaganda. This goes back you know, well, at least till Gen from Genesis 3, right? You know, this was one of the very first things that mankind did in their sin as they started lying, they started deceiving. So why is it such a big deal now? Why is fake news all over the place? And, and I think the answer goes, it transcends well beyond the political. I think the answer has a lot to do with our technology, if you think about it. Uh, it's harder and harder to distinguish what is real from what is false or what is fabricated. Uh, through social media, we can now transmit, we can now send news stories, headlines, um, you know, uh, tweets, etc., far more quickly than anyone can fact check. And so something will go out that's you know, outrageous or scandalous, and it'll just spread in instance thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands or, or a million hits or shares or likes and all these kinds of things. And then when the rebuttal comes later, say, actually, no, that's not true. That, that maybe gets like 120 shares. You know, it's, it's just, there's no equity in this. Um, there are actually some bots, they call them, that write news articles now. They write headlines. And like, there's not a person typing them. It's computers that are doing this. And they've been programmed to get traction and have something that's spread quickly throughout the internet. The latest trend is software that you now can get, and the public has access to this, where you can actually take video clips you can take a picture of someone's face or video clips of someone's face and another video clip of something else and you can combine the two to make someone do or say something that they never did or said according to video. And the technology is getting good enough now where it's becoming difficult to be able to tell. So it used to be the proof was on the camera, not anymore, right? You know, first there was Photoshop, now there's essentially video shop, if you think about it this way. Here's what one New York Times columnist said about this, and he wrote this article about this new video technology. He said, there's probably nothing we can do except try to bat the fakes down as they happen, pressure social media companies to fight misinformation aggressively, I love this last phrase, and trust our eyes a little less every day. Is this the era that we're living in now where we trust our eyes a little less every day? I think if you combine all the technology and the fake news with this long coming shift in worldview that's been talked about now for over 10 years, this shift from modernism to postmodernism, this is a worldview that essentially says, it asks the question anyway, can objective truth even be known? Is it even possible to be able to have something firmly and say this is true, period, end of story? Some are calling this the post-truth era. Isn't that a loaded phrase? The post-truth era. So don't miss this. Here we are this morning, Christians, in the post-truth era. And we are singing about, we're about to read about, we're proclaiming and rejoicing over truth claims about events that happened 2,000 years ago. 
To many, this just seems silly. And yet it's critical that we remember Christianity is rooted in historical narrative. In other words, unlike many other philosophies or ideologies or a lot of other religions, Christianity is not just a set of principles for good living. You know, it doesn't just say, you know, here's the path to a happy life. You know, here's how you kind of navigate through life. That's not ultimately what Christianity is about. Now, it has a lot to say about those things. But at its core, Christianity, rightly understood, is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's news. News about events that actually happened in real time, in real space. The core of Christianity, it has been said, is good news, not good advice. You see the difference in that. So in a post-truth context, this creates a bit of a dilemma for us. If the news is true, and I mean objectively, historically, actually true, not kind of some kind of true in some kind of philosophical or, you know, you know, true in the heart kind of way. I'm talking about objectively true. If the news about Jesus is actually true, it is by far the most important information in the history of creation. I don't think anybody could argue with that if it's true. But if it's not... Like if it's actually fake news, then what are we doing here? I, I hope you understand that whatever reason you came here this morning, if what we've been singing about and what I'm about to, to preach about is not actually true, then we're really wasting our time. And maybe that's exactly what you kind of think we're doing if you're honest, you know, and, and that's okay. I'm not here to judge that at all. I am here to call it out and just, to, to recognize that if you've come here this morning because it's just the thing to do on a Sunday morning of Easter or you know, maybe you came here just to get your wife to stop nagging you or a family member or friend to stop nagging you. By the way, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you came. But aren't we all just kind of wasting our time? I mean, maybe the preacher will preach a, a, a feel-good, inspirational, motivational message and we can all go home and hunt Easter eggs with the kids and feel a little better about ourselves at the end of the day. That's not what Easter is about, though. That's not what we do here. And so what I want to talk about this morning is why can we actually believe this is true? And, and then a, a little bit, we won't have time for all this, but a little bit like what do we do with our doubts, right? Because I just want to acknowledge that's a part of the human condition. Doubt is, right? And Jesus doesn't condemn it. In fact, Jesus is able to sort of say, you only have to have faith the size of a mustard seed. What do we do with the Rest of it, what do we do with our doubts this morning? What basis is there for actually believing this isn't fake news, that this actually happened? Now, there's a lot of angles we could chase this. We could talk about apologetics. We could talk about, you know, evidence for the reliability of the Bible. That would be a great study. We could talk about the historical person of Jesus. We could talk about, you know, historically, how is it that the church spread so fast and so quickly? And all these would be helpful and beneficial paths, and they're all very, very good. What I want to do this morning, and just kind of the short time that we have, is I want to look at how Jesus responded to a challenge to prove his claims. So when a group of people came to Jesus and said, we want you to prove that you are who you say you are, that all this is true and all this is real, how did Jesus actually respond? So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be just in four, four verses or so, 38 through 41. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you now, this is not your typical Easter morning text. You know, this isn't the resurrection text, but I actually think it's a fantastic Easter text. 
and I think you'll see why. Let me give you a bit of a context as we sort of jump in. Um, in the 12th chapter of Matthew, here's what's already happened. Jesus has already been doing ministry for a while. He's done a lot of miracles. He's healed a lot of people. He's, he's thrown demons out of people. He's healed diseases. He's even raised a little girl from death. And, and everybody is starting to see, hey, this is more than just a rabbi. And some are even saying he is the promised Messiah, the Son of God who has come to rescue us. Now, there's one group of people that refuse to believe what Jesus said and who he claimed to be, no matter what he did, no matter what he said. It was the religious leaders. Their minds were made up about him. And even at this point in the narrative, you know, we're not even halfway through Matthew's gospel, they were already trying to trap him so they could kill him because they saw him as a threat. You know, you'll, you'll usually see them described as the scribes and the Pharisees. This is kind of the, the religious ruling system. These are the, the lawyers, if you will, of the Jewish religion. And they don't want Jesus to teach. They don't want him to keep doing these miracles. Interestingly, they can't deny the miracles, but what they start doing in chapter 12 is they start saying, okay, maybe you can do miracles, but your miracles come from Satan, not from God. And then Jesus, it's actually kind of humorous, he just like swats that argument away because it's so silly. And he says, if I'm coming from Satan, why am I casting out demons? Like, why am I doing all these things that Satan is against? That makes no sense whatsoever. And, and, you know, they don't argue with him after that. So then they just come back with this other approach. In fact, they're going to challenge the validity of who he is. They're going to ask for proof. And now they're setting this up as a trap. But there's a part of me, and hopefully there's a part of you too, that's kind of like, well, yeah, I, I want proof. I've got doubts. I mean, can, we, can we kind of just name that this morning? It's hard to believe in an empty tomb 2,000 years ago when none of us in this room have literally physically seen the body of Jesus Christ yet. Right? Is that not somewhat difficult to believe? And so we approach this text with, with the context of the scribes and Pharisees, but also with some humanity as well, saying, yeah, I would like proof as well. And I'm interested to see how Jesus will answer this. Let's dive in. We're in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So here's what's going on here. They're saying, we want proof that you are Messiah. You know, this word sign in the Greek, it's a little bit of a technical term. It means like an attesting miracle. So it's like, we've seen you do these other miraculous works, but we want a sign. Like, we want something that's so big and so great that will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt once and for all that you really are who you say you are. And, and this sign, by the way, this is sort of unstated, but, but, but in the context, this sign must meet our criteria. Problem is, the scribes and Pharisees don't actually say what their criteria is. They just say, we just want to see a sign. In essence, what they're asking Jesus to do is kind of perform on command. It's like, if we're going to believe in you, Jesus, force us to believe. Prove it. And do it on our terms right now. Go. God doesn't play that game. And so we're going to see Jesus' response to them. It's both firm, but also actually kind of gracious. Look at verse 39. He answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
Now, you, know, you might not have seen that coming. That's an interesting turn to talk about Jonah. Let's break it down first, though. The first part of this, he's essentially saying, look, I am not a pet that you can command to do tricks. In, in the context of an evil and adulterous generation, you have to kind of understand the history of the Hebrew people. Right? God had wooed them. God had gone into covenant relationship with them. God had shown himself over and over and over. God had promised Jesus. In fact, there were signs all throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the very works that Jesus was doing now. The blind were receiving sight. The sick were becoming well. The dead were rising from the grave. And yet they did not believe. And Jesus is calling out that unbelief despite a lot of evidence. And yet he's also gracious. And then he says, however, I am going to give you a sign, a big one. It's the sign of Jonah. Now, you know, some of you know where this is going, right? Because you're familiar with this text. Others of you are like, ah, I don't see what Jonah has to do with Jesus. So let, let's just recap the Jonah story for a minute. I think we've all heard of it. Jonah and the whale. You know, we don't actually know it was a whale. It's, it's called a great fish or a big fish in the scripture. It may have been a whale. So Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament. God had told him to go to this wicked Gentile city and preach repentance. And Jonah didn't want them to repent, to be honest with you. So what did he do? He said no. <laughs> a prophet said no to God. Now, how about that, right? They're human. <laughs> and so Jonah actually goes the other direction. He gets in a ship to sail as far away as he can as possible. And of course, on that journey, big storm comes. Such a big storm that everybody on that ship's gonna lose their lives, right? They're all, like the crew members all praying to their gods and, you know, like, you know, and, and throwing stuff overboard. And, and so and Jonah probably has a guilty conscience at this point in time. And he's thinking, look, we're all gonna die. It's better for me to die than the whole crew to die. So he fesses up. He says, I'm a prophet of the one true God. I've been running away from him. And I've got a hunch that this storm is about me. So if you'll throw me in the water you'll be saved. And these men didn't want to do it, but when they saw pretty clearly that they were all going to die, they reluctantly threw Jonah in the water, and guess what? Storm, calm. Jonah's as good as dead, but he's not. You know, Jonah doesn't die. He gets swallowed up and actually preserved in the cavity of this great fish for three days until he's spit out. And at that point in time, Jonah's like, all right, God, you got it. So he goes to Nineveh, you know, probably smelling pretty fine, I can imagine. And he preaches repentance. And guess what? All the people repent, despite the fact that that's not actually what, what Jonah wanted. Now, here's the story of Jonah. But what in the world's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jesus is going to spell it out in the very next verse. Let's take a look. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, are you following this? Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection. This is the sign. He's, he's saying, look, what happened to Jonah is a precursor to what's going to happen to me in the future. I'm going to go down into the earth like Jonah went down into the sea, but I'm literally going to die he was as good as dead. I actually am going to be dead. And then I'm going to come back out after three days, just like Jonah. You see, the sign of Jonah is the resurrection. The sign of Jonah is Easter. So Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees, look, you want proof. You will get proof. You will see me go into the earth and then come back. 
Like he, he's putting them on notice. He's saying, even you, scribes and Pharisees, when you see this sign and believe, you will be saved. Here's the thing. Jesus knows the hearts of this particular group of people. He knows their minds are already made up. And so he goes on in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here's what Jesus is saying. The Ninevites believed Jonah because he came out of a fish. You are not going to believe me even though I come out of a grave, you see. And so at the judgment, you're going to be condemned while those evil Ninevites who believed Jonah are actually going to be saved. The irony is, scribes and Pharisees, skeptics, doubters, you're going to get the sign that you're wanting. What more could you want than resurrection? This is what Jesus is saying. Now, many of you in the room are thinking, fine, you know, if I actually saw real resurrection, if I actually was there and maybe saw Jesus, and like Thomas, if I could put my fingers, you know, where, where the, the nails were in his hands and his feet, then, then I'd probably believe too. What good does it do me, the sign of Jonah, if I wasn't there to see it? And here's what I want to help you understand for this passage to really come alive for you. You have to first understand the, the full context of the Jonah story for the Hebrew people. There's a lot of weight that Jonah carried with the Hebrew people, and I want to unpack that for you. And then you have to connect it to your own story. And that's where we're going to land at the end of the message. So let's talk about the depth, you know, kind of from a cultural historical context of what Jonah represented to the Hebrew people. And particularly, let's talk about their view of the sea. Hebrew people did not see the ocean the same way you and I do. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet you some of you in this room were down at 30A for spring break this week, right? Uh, every time I go down there, half of Williamson County is down there. So I know some of you were down there. Now, we, we enjoy the ocean. We enjoy the beach. You know, maybe we've been, even been on a cruise. I mean, we, we think of the ocean completely differently than the ancient Hebrew people did. The ancient Hebrew people saw the sea as something scary, something dangerous, even something evil, in fact, in their minds, the sea, the chaotic ocean, the mystery of the deep is where all kind of the evil stuff sort of originated from. All right, now, now God is going to teach them some true theology about the sea. We'll get to that in a minute. But let me read you this quote from R.C. Sproul. He's a, a, a Christian writer, really a brilliant thinker. He's done a lot of writing on this. Here's what he wrote. In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for that which was ominous, sinister and threatening. In ancient Semitic mythology, there is frequent reference to the primordial sea monster that represents the shadowy chaos. Okay, so get this in your head. The sea is the place of danger, death, and destruction to the ancient Hebrew mind. All right? And yet God is going to teach them over and over and over again that he's in charge of the sea. So let me just... Whip out a few examples. Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, right? The earth is formless and void. Genesis 1 chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then the Spirit of God begins to bring order to the chaos. How? By separating the waters and bringing dry land, you see. 
So God's spirit in creation is overcoming the chaotic waters in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 7, God delivered Noah and his family from the flood waters. It was God's protection. Floods came, the ark kept them safe. Exodus chapter 14, the Hebrew people are running away from the Egyptians where they had been enslaved. They get to the sea. Don't you see what they would have thought in their minds? They're like, this is the worst possible scenario. Egyptian army behind us, the place of symbolic death in front of us. By the way, hardly any ancient Hebrews could swim. Ancient people in general. If you went under the water, you couldn't touch, you're as good as dead. So they're butting up against the sea here. They got the army on the other side. What's going to happen? God's power over the sea He pushes it aside, dry land for them. They cross over, brings the death and destruction over the Egyptian army after the Hebrews had passed. Joshua chapter three, another similar miracle. He parts the Jordan River so the people could cross into the promised land. Do you see the pattern here? Why does God keep saving them from the water? Over and over and over. Even in the story of Moses, he's in the basket protected on the Nile River. I mean, it's just this this theme all throughout the Old Testament. Why does God keep doing this? To drill into the Hebrew psyche that although the sea may represent to them danger, destruction, and death, he is greater than the sea. That's what God is teaching them. Now, think about the Jonah story in this context, and you'll understand how unique, important Jonah was to the Hebrew people. Jonah was the only one who had gone down into the sea and come back up to tell about it. Like, metaphorically, Jonah was the only one who'd gone down in the place of death and darkness and evil, destruction, and been preserved and come out on the other side fully alive. So this is embedded, okay? This is embedded in their narrative. And we got to connect the dots. We got to understand how they were thinking of this story. We got to kind of put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. When Jesus says, if you want proof, look to the sign of Jonah, he's saying, I'm going to go down into the heart of the earth. I'm going to go down into death, not unlike Jonah did in a sense. On the third day, I'm going to come back up fully alive and Something greater than Jonah has come. And that last phrase is the key. Right? You you think what happened with Jonah was a sign, was spectacular. Something greater than Jonah has come. Think think about it this way. Uh, Jonah was thrown into the sea because he was running from God. Jesus went to the cross because he was trusting God. Jonah was tossed in the sea by others. Jesus dove in on his own accord. Jonah went overboard reluctantly. Jesus went purposefully. Most importantly, Jonah was as good as dead for three days before reappearing. Jesus was literally dead for three days before resurrecting. Something greater than Jonah has come not just to once again symbolically demonstrate God's power over the sea, but to actually put to death, death itself, and destroy the dark places that were represented in the Hebrew mind with the sea, with the ocean. This is the sign of Jonah. All this is embedded in this narrative, okay? So we come to Easter Sunday morning, 2018. What does the sign of Jonah mean to us? 
So what? We like to ask that question. Here's the thing. Whether you're a believer, whether you're a skeptic, you got to do something with your questions. You got to do something with your doubts. Right? These men came to Jesus and they asked for a sign. You know, and, and I know they're trying to trap him, but, but wouldn't we all sort of like to? Wouldn't we all sort of like to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, give me a sign. All right, I, I want to believe if you just prove it. And, and, and by the way, we don't think this consciously, but what we're really saying is on my terms, on my timing, force me to believe. That's kind of what we're saying. And it's human instinct on the one hand, but I want you to kind of see it from a different perspective on another. And here's what I think Jesus would say to us. All of us, whether believer or skeptic, all of us have been given the sign of Jonah. We have. We have. Now, I want you to think about this, and we're going to dip into apologetics here for just a minute. I want you to think about this. Historically, the empty tomb has to be accounted for. And there's been a lot written about this. There's been a lot discussed and debated about this. It's fascinating. Nobody can prove that that Jesus actually didn't come from back back from the dead. There was no body, right? Now you could argue, well, you can't prove he was alive either. But, But listen, think through the evidence. There's only a couple of possibilities for why that tomb was empty. And by the way, not that many people argue that the tomb wasn't empty, okay? There was no body. When when this new faith system, this new, you know, sect of Judaism started, it was immediately, they were were trying to squash it. What's the only way to squash it? Show the body. They couldn't show the body. They couldn't squash it. Why couldn't they show the body? The body wasn't there. Now, there's only a couple of of reasonable possibilities that could have happened. Um, One is the disciples could have stolen that body, right? You know, they they could have like, you know, snuck around that garrison of Roman soldiers and, you know, moved the stone away, you know, really quietly so that they wouldn't wake up the soldiers, you know, or, uh, and they could have snuck in there and they could have stolen the body. And if they could have pulled that off, it, it, it would have been the most successful fake news story in the history of mankind, bar, bar none. Because what they would have had to do after they stole the body is they would have had to convince hundreds of people to claim they saw Jesus in his resurrected body. And by the way, those people would have to carry that lie, carry that fake news to their death, even through persecution, suffering, and, 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 and martyrdom, without any of them recanting, okay, without any of them saying, just kidding, I saw the dead body, we disposed of it in the Sea of Galilee, he wasn't actually resurrected. No, no, nobody said that. And they were all killed for their faith, like they actually believed he resurrected. Why did they believe it? The tomb was empty, and then they saw him. They saw him. Well, historically, skeptics, non-believers, you have to account for the empty tomb somehow. Now, for those of you who have actually never considered that this could all be true, I know it, it feels like a leap. You know? it may, for you, it may feel like, like, kind of like Jonah leaping off the boat into a great abyss. Some of you may actually feel that way. Um, I want to tell you what the offer is on the table this morning. Not from me, from God's word. In fact, from Jesus himself. The offer on the table for you is no less than life. True life. True life. It's it's abundant life that begins in faith now and eternal life that comes on the other side of death. In other words, through faith in Christ, you will also have a resurrection of your own eternally 
Here's why. You were created for life, not for death. And you know that. Deep down, every human being knows that. That's why nobody wants to die. That's why as that day approaches or we have fear that it approaches or someone we care for and love dearly dies, there's this deep, deep wound and grief. Something is not right and we know it. We were not created for death. Death is an imposter and the offer on the table for all of you would be life and all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. I know for some of you that may seem like, oh, all I have to do is jump off the boat. Are you kidding me? That's not, nothing small. Maybe it's nothing small, but you don't have to get religious. You don't have to do a bunch of good works. It's through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's simply realizing his death was for me. His resurrection is for me. He paid the penalty that my sins deserve. He was raised so that I can walk in newness of life. And if you just have a mustard seed size faith that the Spirit of God has granted to you and you put that faith in Jesus, you will be saved. And by the way, Jesus has the authority to give you life because he conquered death. That's why he can offer this. Now I want to go one more place with this text as we we start to kind of land the plane a little bit here. There is a sense that God in his wisdom and providence has chosen to keep showing us the sign of Jonah over and over and over again right up until this day. Let me explain. When someone puts their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which which maybe this morning, that's like where some of you are at right now. You're just ready to do that. Uh, When that happens, there's a resurrection of sorts. Okay, there's there's a, a transfer from death to life. There's someone that was dead in their sin, Scripture says, and now they are made a new creation. They are made alive. There's a resurrection of sorts, all right? Now, Jesus has given us an ordinance, right? A command that we live out in order to demonstrate, in order to picture, in order to visualize that transformation from death to life. It visually symbolizes what happens when we die in our sins and we're raised up to new life in Christ. Someone tell me what that sign is. It's baptism. Baptism. Think about this. Jesus could have chosen all kinds of different symbols to represent that act. He chose the waters. Not on accident. When you're baptized in obedience to what Jesus has asked you to do through faith in Jesus Christ, you go under the water. If you don't get pulled up out of that water, you're dead. You cannot breathe. And so we say when we take you down, buried with Christ in baptism. But guess what? You don't stay under the water. You pop back up. You are raised back up. Why? Because the waters could not hold Jesus Christ And therefore, the waters will not hold Jesus' followers. You see all that's embedded in this. It's victory over the waters. It's victory over death. Jesus earned it. We symbolize it. In a sense, okay, in a sense, every time you see a baptism, you see the sign of Jonah. It is someone saying, I will be a witness. I will testify. I was dead and I've come back to life. And it's real. And I know Jesus is alive because of what he's done in me. So much so that I'll get up in front of this body and I'll get wet 
and I'll come out of the water crying and celebrating and high five with joy in my heart because resurrection is true and I'm living proof. It's the sign of Jonah. So we sit here this morning in our faith, many of us, in our doubts, many of us, and we ask for a sign. And Jesus says, the sign I have given you is the sign of Jonah. Men and women, this is what we cling to in our faith. It's the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? It's the empty tomb followed by millions of transformed lives. The sign of Jonah is a resurrected Savior who is now resurrecting us. And I will raise my hand and be a witness. And many of you in this room will raise your hand and be a witness. And in this very room, not long ago at all, we had dozens of people who raised their hand and said, I'll be a witness. I'm a sign of Jonah. I was dead and I've come back to life. Jesus is alive. It actually happened. Let me tell you. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would believe, that we would look to the empty tomb, we would look to resurrection day, and we would look to the sign of baptism, and it would strengthen our faith. And for those of you who would never believe, that God would grant you faith to believe, even this morning. Let me pray. Our Father, you are gracious to us. You have given all that we need to believe. And you have chosen not to back us into a corner to force us to believe, but you have given us enough. You've given us the sign of Jonah. You've given us the resurrection of your son Jesus. You've given us the witness of countless men and women for 2,000 years now, over and over and over and over again. And although every force on the human face of this planet has tried to stop and squash your church, they have not overcome it. Even this morning in Brentwood, Tennessee, on Easter 2018, we are continual witnesses of the truth of the resurrection. Why would we be here if new life wasn't real? Why would we be here if Jesus was not who he said he was? Father, would you help us to believe? And would you help our unbelief? Would you give us this sign of something to grab onto April 1st, 2018, to know that you are in control, that you are stronger than the waters, And so we need not fear. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.